Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, I would still love you if you were a worm, but I'd love you even more if you were a bookworm. Come be a worm with us on Bookworm Reads, the social app and book tracker for today's readers. Bookworm is like Goodreads, but with more community, more color, and zero Amazon. Bookworm is a delightful independent app built by readers for readers. And the best part is, you get to dress up your wormy avatar. If you like books, community, and or supporting queer-owned independent apps, check us out at bookwormreads.co. That's bookwormreads.co. See you there. Hey, hey, hey. This is your host, Neba from Notes by Neba. And today I am so excited. I'm going to be chatting with Dina Light. She is the author of Loki's Ring, a book that I had the amazing privilege of being able to read. It just came out March 28th this year, and it was an absolute freaking stunner. Oh my gosh. Dina, I am so excited to have you here on the podcast today to chat about your book. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate that. Uh, Dina, can you tell us a little bit about your book for our dear listeners to have some orientation to your incredible work? Sure. Loki's Ring is about a found family that actually... They, they have a big argument and a falling out, and they split into two groups. And it's all about the things that happen when you have very close relationships. Sometimes you have arguments, and sometimes that can break the group up. Everyone writes about found families, but they don't ever write about how problems might happen and how you might work to repair that or not or whatever. And I wanted to work that into a book, so there's that. And there's also this big alien ring out in the middle of space. And there are AI children and, or AGI children, and also space battles, but they don't actually resolve with violence. Just had it all. I want to narrow in on the problems that you describe in this found family, because obviously many characters have to undergo a lot of physical problems of like being in space and whatnot. But I was really intrigued by how they navigated their emotional problems. Specifically, you wrote in like a lot of methods for working through stressful situations. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to write that in there and what your research was like? Sure. I am non-neurotypical. So, and I also have a lot of anxiety issues. So I thought it would be kind of interesting to show for people working through anxiety issues in ways where they use tools to get through the problems so that the issues that crop up don't actually get in the way. I wanted to demonstrate that you can be prepared and have problems crop up like normal people would. I mean, you're going to be stressed out of your mind in a situation where you're stuck in the middle of space with no oxygen or your ship is not going anywhere and you have a limited amount of time to get home or whatever. It's just normal to be under that those forms of stress. And I just wanted to demonstrate that you can be someone who has a great deal of stress and anxiety and then cope with that and like move on and everything is good. So that's why I depicted that. To me, it just seemed more realistic than, than having characters just be fine, you know? Yeah, the theme I got throughout all of this is that even though we're having this like giant like space opera of people like flying through space, intergalactic warships going everywhere, we're still seeing humans being humans and resolving things in a human way. 
And that was just a very fresh kind of feel to a sci-fi novel. One of the things that you mentioned in your acknowledgments as being the thing that gave you the ability to write all of these very human resolution, human responses was a sensitivity reader. And I never had come across an acknowledgement to a sensitivity reader before. What exactly do they do and how are they helpful in creating Loki's ring? Basically, a sensitivity reader, it depends on which things you have them look out for. I mean, for me, I'm a white woman and here I am writing about characters who are South Asian, who are very much not like me. And I just wanted to do it correctly. I feel like it's important to not, to know where your lane is. It's important. And I feel that I didn't want to step out of bounds. And I also wanted to make sure that I got things as correct as possible to make it as realistic as possible. What exactly does a sensitivity reader do? They read over the manuscript and then they make sure that they give you hints about, hey, maybe you could add in something about Hinduism or not or what have you to make the character flesh out a little better. They also make sure that you haven't said anything particularly offensive. And, but yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I was presenting various diversities that I personally don't have. I wanted to make sure I got those as right as I could. Yeah. Working with someone to ensure that your manuscript correctly conveys all the different aspects of these people, especially when you're just one person, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a form of research, right? I mean, you have to do your research. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I also liked was not just the diversity in people, but also the diversity in AI and the robotics and the types of mechanical processes that are happening in this universe. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about like the different types of AI and where your inspiration for this came from? Sure. AI, as everybody knows, stands for artificial intelligence. But most of what I deal with in this book are considered AGI, artificial general intelligence. So AI itself is a very narrow thing. It has one task that it can handle. It's a, an algorithm. There's, no, there's nothing else to it. It's a program. Yes. And it might teach itself through, what is it, machine learning language or whatever. But it doesn't have a personality. It doesn't have anything that's aware or whatever. An AGI is so would, artificial. So would GPT be considered an AI or an AGI? Oh, and absolutely with the AI. There are no, there's no such thing as an AGI on this planet at this time. There is no such thing. An AGI has an actual personality. It, it does many things like people do. You have job, you have, you play, you have hobbies, all of that. That's an AGI. And quite often in science fiction, they confuse the two. And I feel like it's very important to, to discern the difference because the whole AI industry has taken advantage of people's confusion quite often. They promise a great deal and then deliver far short of that. Then it since the 1950s, since the inception of AI, it's just, they've constantly told us that they'll have an actual human that is functioning as an AGI. And we all jobs. got so disappointed with the Siri on our phones, not even being able mm -hmm. to understand what we were saying. <laughs> exactly. So... So you get it. I just want to make sure we are all aware and we aren't getting taken advantage of by that process by assuming 
because there is a great deal of ethics involved in that as well, because AI is being used in situations where it can be unethical and job applications. And just because a computer is making a decision as to which job applications will end up in front of an employer, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have bias. In fact, it has bias. I guarantee it because they have discovered that whatever human bias in the persons who are programming the AI has come through whether they mean to or not. It just, because one of the things that AI programming does is recognize patterns. And you don't always, you don't always know what patterns are there because they are invisible to the human because they completely like pretend like it's not there. They don't see it because it's just something that's like the air or whatever, right? It's not recognized as a pattern anymore. Yeah, so they use it in in job applications. They also use it in the prison system, which is particularly problematic. We have to know the difference between these two things. We need to be very careful and pay attention to what's going on because a great deal of harm can be done using this particular technology. But also, many good things can happen as well. So, of course. And listeners, <laughs> you can read about all these many great things on Loki's Ring. It's available wherever you get your local independent bookstore or on bookshop.org. As always, we'll have a link to this in our description. We, like, oh my gosh, just light. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Where can our listeners reach out to you if they'd like to learn more about any of this? My website is C S L E I C H T. Dot com so cslight.com i can be found on instagram and patreon and also twitter if you are still there i try not to hang out too much there wandering shop i'm on wandering shop on mastodon are you ready to spice up your bookshelf with some feminist fire then look no further than flowers of fire the inside story of south korea's feminist movement and what it means for women's rights worldwide by journalist hawan hyung this book takes you on a wild ride through south korea's feminist movement where badass, brave women fought against sexual abusers, dodged defamation lawsuits, and went on a birth strike to push back against pressure to marry. You'll meet activists who are changing a criminal justice system that's suspicious of victims and sympathetic to predators. It's a feminist revolution that'll leave you cheering. So put on your best protest outfit and grab a copy of Flowers of Fire by Hawan Young, out now from Ben Bella Books. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordi, and with us today is Rachel Kohler-Croft. Rachel is an author and screenwriter, and today we are going to be discussing her debut thriller titled Stone Cold Fox. This book was published on February 14th of this year. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jordi. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this book. From the first few pages, I was hooked, and I just couldn't put it down. Oh, right. thank you. It's my favorite thing in here. <laughs> so what is Stone Cold Fox and why were you personally inspired to write about this topic? Well, Stone Cold Fox is about an ambitious young woman named B, who I would say is a semi-reformed daughter of a con artist who definitely wants to go about hanging her devious hat up for good. And she sees a path forward to that, potentially by marrying into the 1%. And so <laughs> when she comes across Colin Case, who kind of comes from a family like akin to the Kennedys or the Johnson Johnson family, one of these old blue-blooded East Coast families, she sets her sights on him. And she's a total bombshell, so she doesn't really anticipate 
getting the ring from him will be challenging, but rather gaining the approval of his family and 1% inner circle, namely his childhood best friend, Gail Wallace Lester, who really throws our bee for a loop and will stop at nothing to take her down. And I was inspired to write this for a few reasons. First, like B's voice kind of came to me first. I thought she was really funny. And I will say her humor and ambition and things like that is kind of this amalgamation of myself and my three best girlfriends. And so I wanted to make sure she was a funny character because I think she was going to be a controversial character too. And some people were going to like her and some people weren't. But I knew that if she was funny, people would probably want to go along for the ride regardless of how they felt about her. And what fascinated me about this character, because you, get, I get a lot of questions about the con artistry of it all, which of course is inherently fascinating. But for me, I was thinking about the type of woman that aspires to marry up, kind of the gold digger trope, and how I could subvert that a bit. Because I don't think B is your average gold digger. She's not a bimbo. She's super smart. She's accomplished in her own right. She's really funny, very strategic. And her motivations aren't really about the stuff. It's about the money and the power, right? And so I think that really sets her apart because she could care less about a Birkin bag. She wants money in the bank because she knows what that represents for her, which is safety and security. And she didn't have that growing. Yeah. And so you said that the voice of B kind of resonated with you. And while I was reading the book, you know, she is very cunning. She is very smart. But she also has obvious ulterior motives to almost everything that she does. So what was it like kind of getting into the mind of this character and writing from this, a lot of times, cold perspective that she had? Yeah, I mean, she's a very cynical person. She's not very trusting. And I think that type of person is analyzing every single interaction she has with any human ever, everywhere. I don't want to spoil too much, but there's this character, Syl, that kind of appears in her life at the top. And Syl is a super warm and engaging person. And B finds herself enjoying her presence, but also keeping her at arm's length because she just doesn't trust that because she has so many ulterior motives, she fully subscribes that everyone else must have them too. And what, what do you want from me? And I, what, how do I have to navigate that? I mean, she, she's just not someone that feels like she can relax at any time. She's always looking over her shoulder. And that's because she was raised by a psychopath mother. And things that happen when you're in these formative years, you can have all the therapy you want and B hasn't had any, but it's stuff that stays with you. So I think that's just a part of B's personality for as funny as she is. She is very cynical. And so I just kind of had to, I I wouldn't call myself a cynical person, but I can have cynical leanings at times, like I think we all can. And so when I put her in different situations, I just tried to look at it from that point of view. Like if I were in that mood, how would I approach this situation? And that was sort of my North Star for B. Yeah, especially if you've been burned as many times as B has by people who should have been there to support her and protect her. You're definitely going to be on guard and yes, yeah, yes, try to read people. Yeah, <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> so you did also mention that right now we're kind of very much into as a society the con artists and all of that. Why are we so into reading about these things or watching the documentaries and stuff like that? Yeah, I have a couple of theories on that, and I don't think this is like saying anything bad about humanity at large. But I think we like watching con artist stories 
because we like watching someone go for what they want without any regard for consequences <laughs> because yeah. most of us do have a moral compass and we care about other people and we don't want to swindle anybody. But watching someone do that is kind of exciting. And then I think with a lot of these stories too, and I'm not saying one where the other was Stone Cold Fox, but like we could look at the Anna Delvey story, for example. I mean, numerous others. Oh, who's another one I love? Elizabeth Holmes, so wild. But then there's the satisfaction too that they do ultimately get caught. And I think we like to see that part as well. But yeah, I think the only thing stopping any of us from becoming a con artist is our moral compass. Because the whole thing is just confidence. I don't think con artists are particularly genius or anything like that. It's just they're saying, they're spitting their lives with conviction and people at large believe a confident person, whether they're telling the truth or not. And so I think that really is the thing that teeters and people, and I would wager to say most of us have the moral compass, but for the people that don't, why wouldn't we be a part of it? Yeah, and I think this intrigue also kind of spills over into the 1% area, especially in this book where you're kind of produced into the grander things that some people have in their life. So what was the research like doing this for figuring out, you know, what it's like to be a part of the 1% or what they would actually do and that type of stuff? Yeah, I'm really fascinated by it. I think a lot of us are, and I think it's a combination of being attracted slash inspired by it while at the same time being pretty repulsed. (laughs) It's kind of that push-pull, I think. And you know, that's a life that most people are not going to get to live. And so there's a general curiosity about, you know, the things you'll never potentially experience. As far as research, I mean, I don't know. I've always like, I like to watch Succession. I like to read, you know, books about, you know, these old storied families. I mean, I said it purposely on the East Coast just because like I live in Los Angeles where there's plenty of money as well. But it's a different vibe. Like if your family has been wealthy for the better part of the, this country's existence, <laughs> so like I think it's just going to be a very different way of life. So I really just kind of pushed it as far as like, you know, Colin Case, for example, he gets a kick out of driving because they never drive anywhere because they have drivers. And there's a moment where they take a helicopter, for example, and it's not really a big deal. And they go to the Hamptons and Newport, Rhode Island, where the real old money is. Just those sorts of things that I've picked up over the years from having a passing fascination and being a years-long subscriber to Town & Country, for example, because I just think <laughs> so fascinating and interesting. And like, I, you know, people were asking too if I'm like skewering the 1%. And I think, you know, there's plenty of that and plenty of just cause for it too. But I did want to approach it from a more anthropological standpoint, especially through B's eyes, because she's not really that impressed by them. It's more about, wow, look at what they have that they never have to worry about anything again. And you can think of, you have a lot more room for other things when you're not thinking about paying your bills and probably will never have to think about that. And so, you know, Colin, for example, I didn't, I didn't want to paint anyone with too broad a brush because people are born into the circumstances they're born into. And I don't think we can expect someone in the Kennedy family, for example, to be super in touch with the realities of the world. Like rich people have been around since the beginning of time and they'll always be there. And could they do better in some regards? Sure. But that's not really necessarily what this entire book was about. It was more just like 
looking at one woman trying to get into it because it looks like a pretty safe, solid way to live. And I thought that was interesting from a main character's perspective. Yeah, you could definitely tell that throughout the story, B was definitely trying to get to where she wanted to be based off of a security perspective, not so much as a, like, look what I have. Yeah, like, but that wasn't her whole motivation about, like, the stuff and the shoes and the bags and the, it was more about, like, okay, if I marry into this family, I literally have to worry about nothing ever again. And that, for her, who worries about everything all of the time, just, like, a place to rest. And then, I don't know, I think B is such a cool character, too, that, if she were raised in a different circumstance, I just think she could have done anything. And I, in some ways, it's a little, I don't know if we want to say sad, but the fact that like because of the product of how she's raised, this is like her main goal and she can go after it. Like if she were raised in a different circumstance, like I think they could have became like president of the United States. There's even a moment where she's like looking in the mirror like, what, what do I want to be or who do I want to be? And I think she is just that kind of ambitious person that depending on how she wanted to channel it. I just think she can do anything she wants. <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely. And that kind of like leads into my next question because there's no clear heroine per se in this story. And you do kind of see B struggle with going after what she wants. But I still think she has a little bit of a moral compass and it kind of comes through in certain aspects. So what was it like going about writing her as an anti-hero? Yeah, I think for B, she does have a moral compass. It's not super honed at the top, but I do think she experiences some growth because her whole barometer, we can call it, is she gets into these situations and she's like, well, what would my mother do? And I'm not going to do that, but how can I use what I've learned from her to still get what I want? And like her whole reason for being is to prove to herself she's not like her mother. It's kind of this nature versus nurture argument she's always having with herself. So I think for as sly and cunning and if we want to call her an anti-hero, she is. I do think she has some redeeming qualities that are deep down buried within her that I think in the right circumstance she'd be able to excavate. And I think that's what she's exploring with all of these people that she comes across in this particular adventure. But yeah, I, I tend to like anti-heroes using that word only because I don't like villain is so like I'm always attracted to villains as characters, but I think that's because they tend to be very active characters. And I just like when women in particular in the stories I'm reading or watching are making active choices in whatever direction they're going, good, bad, evil, whatever, but they're, they have the agency, right? Cause I just get tired of seeing oh, I'm such a mess and they're drug pills. <laughs> All these things are just like happening to them in thrillers. And I really wanted to write someone that was the one making the money moves, <laughs> like mm -hmm. kind of going after it. Because I think, of course, if you still run into conflict and issues when you have a character that's capable. And so I just wanted to make sure B and really all of the characters, especially the women characters, had their own motivation, even ones that I couldn't necessarily spend too much time with because the whole novel is in B's perspective. So we're not really seeing what characters are doing when they're not around her. But I liked thinking about them. Like there's a couple side characters that even though they're only in it for a little bit, I wanted to make sure they felt three-dimensional and rounded and you totally understood what they were after. And like Red Daly is one of them. Calliope Case is another. Like I just, I wanted to make sure they had their moments to shine too because 
I just get, I don't really like a passive character personally. I know there's a time and a place, but it's it's not for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, and I think that's one of the things I appreciated most about this book was you could tell, especially like you said with the women, each one of them, even down to I believe it was the head of HR who was in for oh, like, yeah. a little snippet. It was like very strong, very to the point. They like to crack down, so the <laughs> workplace was no exception. <laughs> yeah, and. That makes me want to talk about how in this book, you explored that complicated mother-daughter dynamic and also the relationships between women and how society kind of pits us together. So why did you decide to explore these types of relationships and include them in Stone Cold Fox? Mostly because I just find them the most interesting. And this isn't like to knock relationships between men and women because they're interesting too, but I just feel like sisters, mothers, daughters, friends, quote-unquote frenemies, people you meet at work. I just think there's so much complexity in a relationship between two women, no matter what nature it is. And in terms of like a thriller and knowing that I was going to make complicated, sometimes toxic relationships, I just think it really makes a big impact because like in real life, I feel like no one can lift you up or break your heart quite like another woman. I mean, I'm sure there's things we all remember. And I have a great relationship with my mother, to be clear. But I think there are moments that you probably remember something your mother said when you were a kid that hurt your feelings. And she probably doesn't remember it at all, but it like really stayed with you. And same thing, I would say, like, if you've ever been through a friendship breakup, I would argue that those have been more painful than breakups I've had in relationships that I've had with men. And I just think that the relationships between women are really powerful in all directions, good and bad. And that's really what I set out to explore for B. Yeah. I was just saying, like, as a side note, it talks about like stuff that your parents can say or your mom can say. And it's like, I still go back and like, <laughs> I'll even tease my mom about it. Where I'm like, I remember you said this one thing, like when I was 13. And it's never like, left me. Yeah. And they feel terrible because they're like, yeah. I don't remember saying that. I'm sorry. It's just one of those things. Like when I was going back to actually write the flashback chapters, I tried to think about like pivotal ages and moments and things where, I mean, being and mother's relationship is very heightened and toxic. And I hope no one relates to it specifically. However, I think some of the the sentiments can seem relatable to anyone that has a certain type of relation, any relationship with their mother, really, just because it's it's long and varied and interesting and lovely. And sometimes it hurts too. So I just wanted to make sure that was something to explore that I actually, when I went back into for revision, I beefed up that whole thing because I think it made B's motivation stronger. It made her stronger as a character. And then I think for To be honest, I'm not that concerned with likability, but I know a lot of people are. And so I thought by showing some of B's childhood, maybe people wouldn't, the people that don't like her wouldn't like her, but they would understand her. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think part of that is what kept me going just in the sense that I liked seeing the flashbacks and kind of what, like how she created herself in the end and like where that all came from. That was very interesting. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I we would never probably call herself a victim, even though she obviously was of her mother. But she's just the type of woman that is the bad stuff that happens to her as fuel and makes active decisions about how she wants to change it. 
I mean, this is kind of a bizarre example, but she's someone I do like and find fascinating. But Harper's Bazaar just did an article about Paris Hilton. And you know how she's kind of having her renaissance and talking about how she had to go to those reform schools where she was abused and put in solitary confinement. And there was this quote she put in there about she was like in this room alone to like for days on end, has no idea what time it is. And she was just like plotting about who she was going to be after all of this was over and how she was going to make her own money and her parents and these people. And no man was going to tell her what to do ever again. And I just, it gave me chills a little bit because I was like, it's kind of like B. Like, I just feel like there are certain types of people and certain types of women that just kind of have, and Paris was raised like a rich girl, but like still have that fire and drive in them where they take those experiences and don't let them defeat them, but rather like use it as fuel to raise up to the next thing. I think that's really cool and powerful and making something good out of something really bad. Mm -hmm. So you've worked across many different industries. Did you pull from any of those experiences while you were trying to put this story together? Yeah, some of them for sure. I mean, B's job, I've never worked in advertising specifically, but I've had like corporate jobs and I don't know, it is kind of a game at the end of the day, like knowing the politics of the office and who's who and who you got to schmooze and all of those things. So some of that stuff I found really fun to revisit and write. And I actually really liked all of my coworkers at that time. A lot of them are coming to my Chicago event in a couple of weeks. But it's just sort of funny because I think those things are super relatable. If you've ever had any type of corporate job anywhere, you know the woman from HR, you know the boss who's kind of a dingbat, but you still have to like tell him what he needs to hear. And I just think someone like B would use it as like a chessboard, right? Like I, there's even a part where she's like, I like unlocking these achievements because she really does treat it, you know, as a game and a form of entertainment and how to like, you know, put money in her pocket. And then as far as like the case family, it's not a straight interpretation by any means, but it was like a seed of all of this. I had an ex-boyfriend that went to an Ivy League school and his mother was absolutely terrible to me. And it was just sort of, it was a really bizarre experience. And so Colin and Haven were initially inspired by those people. But then as I started to write, I actually grew to really love Colin and Haven in their own special ways. And I don't have any love for those other people. So I don't even want to give them the credit anymore because now my characters have taken such a, an interesting turn. I wanted everyone to feel super three-dimensional and they have their good points and their bad points. Like, we all do. <laughs> yeah. No, you can you can definitely tell throughout the story with each of the characters, honestly. You know, you can either relate to a certain aspect of their relationships or interactions and experiences. And I honestly couldn't put this book down. I was like, what's going to oh, happen? What's going to happen? Thank you. I mean, that's like a lot. I think being a screenwriter first for me made personally made me a better novelist because I just especially for thrillers. Like you want to keep going. I wanted to make sure every chapter ended on a cliffhanger. You have to inject humor in the right places when it gets too dark. I mean, it is like you're creating a whole world. And so that was the fun part for me too, going back in and getting to give more real estate to things I can't in a script just because the nature of a script being so much shorter. Like I liked talking about, you know, what they're wearing, what they're listening to. And then obviously being so lucky to be in B's voice the entire length of the story was fun. And I don't know. I just, I really love hanging out with these characters. <laughs> I feel like I could write like a hundred books and be honest to God. Oh, I, and I would read every single one of them. <laughs> She's just fun. 
like for as dark and mean as she is, she cracks me up too. And I really always had fun writing in her voice, even through the parts where I would get frustrated because it is frustrating writing a book too. But she was a really great North Star to to have as my focus. Okay, before we head out, is there anything new with you that you would like to share with us? I do have some breaking news. I'm really excited to announce that Stone Cold Fox has been optioned for a TV series by Universal Television and Julie Plex Company, my so-called company. And the even better news is that it's not only optioned, but I'm going to be the writer, executive producer of the show, should we sell it to a network, which I feel really good about. So it's all very exciting. And, you know, I, I did send out to write a great book first and foremost, but I would be lying to you if I didn't see this as part of my grand plan as, as a writer. You know, I, as a screenwriter, you're often called in to pitch on books that other people have written and they're great books and it's a fun thing to do. But I want, I have my own ideas too. And so I saw this as kind of a long game potentially to that path. So write my own book, get to adapt it, hopefully further down the line, direct them too. And if anyone has read Stone Cold Books, probably laughing because I guess B had to come from somewhere. <laughs> I was like, what would B do in this situation? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm super excited for you. And I feel like this is the most ideal situation as a reader and a viewer. Because, you know, you always watch the book to movie or TV adaptations and you're like, why didn't they include this one part or why did they have to switch this up? And I feel like having the author as a screenwriter, you're going to get the perfect production. Yes, I hope so. I'm optimistic. And, you know, I think I, I think about them as different mediums, too, because I think that's important. But what I'm excited about is because it's a TV show, we're going to have to expand it. Right. And I'm excited to make new stories with characters I love so much. So I did have to be in B's voice the whole time during the book. And now it's like, oh, I can see what, you know, Calliope Case was up to one day when B wasn't around or what was going on with Syl. Like, it, I think it's going to become more ensemble and largely about the women because they're so good and juicy and wild. So I'm excited to see what mischief we can get them into on the small screen. I cannot wait to watch it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if any of you haven't gotten out and gotten Stone Cold Fox, go do it. You won't regret it. It's awesome. Thanks, Jordy. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.